This episode of LA Meekly is brought to you once again by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to podcast sponsorships such as host red ads like this one, interview segments, topical discussions, and more. It gives podcasters the creative freedom and full control of when and how they want to monetize their show by finding companies that they can run ads for. There's no middleman. Podcasts of all sizes can browse sponsors and choose the right opportunity for them. You set your own rate. Never give up any rights to your podcast, which is the most important thing. And Podcorn is always there to make sure it goes smoothly. Well, I'll say it once again. I wish we had this earlier because we were oh, looking yeah. for something just like this. Running ads for companies that we like and other shows that we think are interesting. So that's the whole thing. You get to pick. It's not like you sign up and Podcorn assigns like, you're going to be doing an ad for big oil spills. <laughs> you get to pick companies that align with your audience and your interests. So it's a really great thing. It's a good way to make money if you have your own podcast, which I know all of you do do actually every, every single, single one of you, of you. so when you're you... born to get a birth certificate and you get a podcast so you have to yeah. run here's how you breastfeed here's your rss feed <laughs> so if you want to get involved that's podcorn.com that's podcorn.com get started Hey there, Hi. sports fans. The only sports song I know. I think that's two yeah. episodes in a row for two different sports that I've sang that song as the beginning yeah. of sports talk. I want to say it's embarrassing, but it's still more than I know. It could be both, I guess. It's a sports song for, uh, first, a sport that I don't know which one it is, and second, <laughs> for a TV broadcast of it that hasn't happened since the 90s. <laughs> I still sing the old-timey football song. And then, like, he's got a leather helmet. That's an American anthem. Yeah, all piece of football games in old movies. John Philip Sousa wrote the theme for the NFL. (laughs) Now that we've talked about not baseball, we're here to talk baseball. The old uh, not pig skin. The old zebra skin. I don't don't know animals. I don't know skin. I don't know sports. Here we have a special mid-month episode, another interview, this time with friend of the show, I'd say, at this point. Yeah, I'd say friend of the show. And friend of us as well. We have Eric Nussbaum, author of Stealing Home, Los Angeles, The Dodgers, and The Lives Caught in Between. One of the best books about LA history, I think, in my opinion, one of the most readable books about LA history. As we talk about in the episode, it came out about a year ago, and we were planning on doing an interview with him at Dodger Stadium, and then the pandemic hit, and I'm not going near Dodger Stadium, so we just- be tested to be vaccinated i'm not going near it i don't believe i think it's all fake (laughs) i think dr stadium is fake i always thought that baseball was a hoax (laughs) yeah we're talking with him about his book which is about the creation of dodger stadium and more importantly we talked about it in one of our baseball episode but not as well or in depth yeah as his book goes into about the whole the whole ordeal with creating dodger stadium and it seemed like a big ordeal it wasn't just like you guys get i get out of here like it was like a like a giant net was thrown over and all yeah. people got caught in it yeah it's definitely a book everybody should read and mm-hmm. we didn't get even get to talk about in the episode that on the back cover i think it is of the book there's a quote from dr dre about like how much he loves this book and then also just a few months ago bob odenkirk tweeted about the book like yeah. hey i love this book and i better call 
Mr. Show. Are we talking about the same person? Oh my god, we are. That guy has a good career. I mean, it's already a popular book. You probably already heard about it. But yeah. it's also now it's available on paperback if you want that version of it. If you don't, you want to put it in your back pocket when you uh, go, yeah, when I wanna... you go ride your wooden scooter to Dodger Stadium. And you want to read a page or a paragraph yeah. in between something that happens at frequent intervals. Like waiting in between getting your vaccine and the 15 minutes when you can leave. Writing at a red light for it to green. I'm going to read a chapter real quick. Uh, I asked him where he wants people to buy it from he recommends your local bookstore so any local Good bookstore man. of yours Might that we recommend romans a skylight books whatever skylight book, yeah. oh yeah romans we talked about romans. forget skylight books romans last bookstore romans we haven't done an episode on those greg they don't exist as far as i they're not they're not canon but he also he wanted to let everybody know about he has a newsletter now about different sports stories and sports oh, wow. history i didn't so know this that's because we're bad interviewers can you do me a favor can you tell me before you tell them uh greg um yeah. eric wanted me to let you know uh to eat his shorts okay 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 yeah, so take note okay, cool cool cool, 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 cool. <laughs> i'll make sure to do that but for everybody else uh, he wants you to go to sports stories dot substack dot com so that's sports stories s-p-o-r-t-s-s-t-o-r-i-e-s dot substack s-u-b-s-t-a-c-k dot com short stories uh, got it don't you dare greg eat his shorts so <laughs> eat yeah his short stories eat my short fiction so uh sign up for his newsletter if you like his writing which i've always been a fan of his writing we talked yeah. about when he did an article about anjay kopitar for sports illustrated i was so excited and i went to the king's training rink the same day he was there just so I could see him at work and maybe see Andre Kopitar and all I saw was Jim Fox (laughs) (laughs) and all I got was Jim Fox I talked to you earlier about how when we're interviewing Eric and we know him personally you know him better than I do but we both know him personally and but as soon as the interview starts it becomes very professional and we were still like Chris Farley from SNL we're like so so um Dodgers huh he's like yeah oh cool man cool cool that's great Uh, he's a very smart guy and he can he knows knows this subject inside and out. He he yeah. knows everything there is to know about. I feel like that he knows everything there is to know about every sport and he decided to just pour a little bit of his knowledge into this book specifically about the creation of Dodger Stadium. So yeah. we recommend his book Stealing Home Los Angeles the Dodgers and the Lives Caught in Between. If you're new to our show, hey, listen to us. We've covered Free Dodger baseball, we've covered our own Chavez Ravine story and just LA history in general is what we yeah. do. You know, we were mentioned in the footnotes of this book so we have a little bit of credentials we're published we're published as well seeing our name in print it's weird and it points out how stupid the name of the show is i'm like (laughs) we should have been something we should have been something smarter and cooler we release episodes on la history every month if you want to check us out you found us this way but you can also find us on itunes and spotify youtube spotify let me actually let me let me listen to an episode real quick (laughs) let me just play uh here here's a taste (laughs) of it hey we're here to you could follow our twitter at la meekly but also you could follow eric's twitter where he tweets a lot again about sports at eric nuss uh, so without further ado here is uh, our interview with eric nussbaum talking about his book stealing home los angeles the dodgers and the lives caught in b See you on the other side. Uh, You won't. See see you in two weeks, I guess, is what the other side means to Greg. Uh, A fortnight. The other side of a fortnight. (laughs) See you in a fortnight, folks. And and if you're new to the show, that's how we sign off every episode. Every single episode. All right. Enjoy.
it's nice to have you here after a year of not having you here because we were supposed to do this yeah. last March. When did your book come out? This is star- this is started. It started. So are, are we podcasting now? Is this yeah. a podcast? Yeah. Wait, is it? this thing on? Uh, now I don't even remember the answer to the question. Oh my god! <laughs> the book came March. out last March, so March twenty fourth. It was, was going to be literally like a year ago that we were going to do this at Dodger Stadium, and now Dodger Stadium's like a, a biohazard. <laughs> I mean. In a sense, it always has been. Oh, my God. And that brings me to my first question. Did coronavirus start at Dodger Stadium? <laughs> did you just get an award also? I did. I actually have the medal on the table over here. But oh. I, I have headphones on, so I'd have to unplug them to go to go get it. I think you would like to see it because it has an LA Kings lanyard that it's on right now. Hold on. <laughs> did it come with that? <laughs> I know this is a confusing message, but <laughs> here's a lanyard for hockey. <laughs> to the best goalie. <laughs> so this is, the, this is the Seymour medal from the Society for American Baseball research oh my god that's it's really big not not to brag but i (laughs) could like i opened up the envelope and i couldn't believe how large it was you could like it's like you could Use it as a coaster for like a uh, very it's heavy? big beer. Oh, yeah. It's a Mr. T style medallion. And it is. I, I, I feel a little bit like Flavor Flav when I <laughs> He won one of those awards too, didn't he? I think so. Uh, that's pretty. <laughs> You're going to you, wear no. it? <laughs> I'm actually not because it's uncomfortably. It's, it's they, too they, big. Also, they also gave me this crown. <laughs> Uh, I gotta wear it with this robe while these people fed me. Not a big deal. I'm very humble. Just trying to live my best life in the pandemic. (laughs) His personal trainer's rubbing his shoulders. His publisher's rubbing his shoulders. So first about you, because I have to ask about you. Where did you grow up in LA? Was it Culver City the whole time? It was Culver City the whole time. I mean, I was born... (laughs) What a twist. Not technically in Culver City in Hollywood. Uh, uh, when I was like two, we moved to Culver City. Yeah, I'm, I'm a Culver City native, I would say. Back in the, this is back in the day, you know, before Culver City became such a destination. I like to think I played a part in that. <laughs> You've always been a big proponent of Culver City, uh, much to my confusion. Have I? You've been, uh, well, both you and Alex are, are big, uh, pusher you always want me to come to culver city and it's like impossible to get there like it's like i can never find the entryway to culver city there's like five freeways that, that stop in culver city that's the appeal of it but, <laughs> but but the ones i always use take me like just outside of culver city and then i can't penetrate into culver city there's like a, a it's an income threshold now you have to show your tax forms first <laughs> starting in like 2009 that was the rule I, I think i've already said this on the podcast before but uh i've known Eric, a very long time. I've known you since yeah, 2005 long? or 2006. Five ish, somewhere time. around there. We went to Israel and Poland together and we shared a room at one point. It was fun. Part of it was fun. Okay. Your book, like we said, it came out right at the beginning of when all this started, which is so frustrating because I know you had, well, you had this podcast lined up. I know that much, but you had better things to do also, like the LA Times Book Festival. You had a ton of really fun stuff planned and then everything got screwed up. So what was it like promoting a book during this? It's hard to really compare it to anything because I haven't gotten to promote a book in any other way. I've only ever been a a COVID book promoter. (laughs) I was really excited about the LA Times Book Festival. I was going to be on a panel with Mike Davis, which was terrifying to me, but also kind of thrilling. It was going to be really cool. I don't know. I was excited about going to New York to talk at the Brooklyn Historical Society. It was was making me feel like I was a little bit important. But Look how far you've fallen. I know. (laughs) I've literally fallen to the exact same place I was when this all started. I think... 
There's been some benefits to the whole promoting a book during the pandemic thing. The main one that I've sort of realized recently is that it's given me a productive outlet while I've been stuck at home. So I've, I've been able to just like focus on, you know, self-promotion as a way to stay sane. Yeah, you have been able to do more things since you could literally give an interview anywhere in the world from your home now. Yeah, so I, and there's a benefit to that. Yeah. So you're lucky this pandemic hit, aren't you? Say it. <laughs> Won't say it. <laughs> I almost got a recording. I didn't know this was going to be a gotcha journalism kind of thing. <laughs> All of our, that's the title of the Zoom meeting. <laughs> it was just gotcha. What were you going to say, Greg? I was going to say your book came out the summer before the Dodgers won the World Series for like, what, 28 years? I think uh, it was 32 years because it was, was the same, or 31, because it's the same. The last time they won was my birth year. So I, 88. that's as much as I know about the Dodgers. <laughs> You're wearing a shirt that says Dodgers right now. I know Greg got it for me. I'm wearing it for you, but it's a Kings logo that says Dodgers. So it's I my. Can, little... I recognize the Kings logo. <laughs> it's my protest to you. It was kind of them. It was. Kind, I was going to say it was. Do you take credit for that? <laughs> for giving all the minds on Dodger Stadium and the Dodgers. I don't know if I take credit, but I do appreciate the <laughs> generosity of the team to do something to help me promote my book. It was a weird thing because the Dodgers weren't participants in stealing home. They didn't really respond to my interview requests and they have shown no interest in talking about the history that I talk about in the book. But in their own way, by winning the World Series, I hope they've they've helped a little bit with getting other people to talk about it. <laughs> Did they really not want anything to do with it? No. Do you think it was didn't. just because, like, who's Eric? Or did they were, like, ashamed or something like that? I don't think it was about me in a good way or a bad way. <laughs> like, I think it was more about that they don't really want to engage with this stuff, with these events. They're complicated and they're messy. And the Dodgers seem to prefer just ignoring it. You know, I've heard from people who have been on the stadium tour that, like, when you go on the stadium tour, they don't talk about what happened before. It's very much the official history. Right. My assumption is that that's just their policy and that nothing would make them change it. I w- I'm going to I have I I came up with really good questions, so I'm going <laughs> to get to that later. But first just tell us what your book is about for people who don't know. Sure. My book is about the long messy events that preceded the construction of Dodger Stadium. LA Meekly listeners know that you guys have done an episode on this. That's another thing. Do you credit us a lot for this <laughs> book also? <laughs> You're in the acknowledgments. Yeah, we, we are. I, I, I know you were fishing for that one, Dan. <laughs> Just say it. The story is really like the book is about these three communities that used to be there where what we now call Chavez Ravine is. And in particular, one family called the Arechiga family that lived in Palo Verde, not Palos Verdes. So it follows this family as they, you know, migrate from Mexico to Arizona and to LA. You know, they build a home, they establish a life in the city, dealing with all the structural racism, all the good and bad things about America for decades before in the late 40s, the city leaders decide that the site of their neighborhood would be better served as the site of a very large public housing project. And the book also tracks this public housing advocate named Frank Wilkinson, and he's a fascinating guy who gets eventually blacklisted as a communist, which leads to the cancellation of the housing project. This is a really short version, and the eventual construction of Dodger Stadium at the site where the housing project was supposed to be. There's a lot of like Red Scare politics, there's a lot of real estate history, there's a lot of baseball history, and ultimately, you know, we know the end. Yeah. With an acknowledgement of L.A. Meekly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's the thing about your, I really like your writing style. I, I got the audiobook of it last summer and it's written really well. It feels very narrative and it makes you 
have a way of making all of these separate things seem like they're going to converge and it's inevitable, I guess, because I know about Dodger Stadium. The book's incredible, by the way. Thank know. you. Dan Thank would never say that, but I would. This podcast is incredible. Stop it. Oh, that's <laughs> so kind of you. <laughs> that, that, I really appreciate that, Greg, because I think the sense of inevitability was a big part of what I was going for when I wrote it. it obviously, the book has a lot of moving pieces to it, a lot of short mm-hmm. chapters. It's complicated structurally. <laughs> probably more than it needed to be. Uh, but I don't think when you read, you can feel that that much, hopefully. Yeah. And the looming sense of disaster or triumph, depending on your perspective, is I think kind of what makes the narrative work. Where did you do all your research? Because you yeah. went pretty deep into a lot of stuff. A lot of places. So the first part of it was talking to people. I'm a you know journalist, more by training, not even by training, more by experience. So you know, getting interviews with folks who lived in these communities or who knew people who did. Interviews with, you know, the families that I was writing about. That was a hard process because it required earning their trust as an outsider. This story has been told a lot of times by a lot of different people. And I don't think that people who lived it have been particularly satisfied with most of those tellings, in part because it gets told from this very kind of bird's eye view where the humanity of the people involved is a little bit lost. And so I really wanted to make sure I kind of focused on that and made it as intimate as possible. And with that, you know, I had an obligation to get it right and to be empathetic and to really try to capture what it was like in Palo Verde, for example, and what these people were like to the best of my ability, you know, working decades after (laughs) this place stopped existing. So the first part of it was that, was just listening to people. The other part was archives. You know, there's a lot of really great libraries in Southern California. Uh, The Southern California Library in South Central was huge. The Charles Young Research Library at UCLA, Cal State Northridge, Cal State LA. I was kind of bouncing around between different archives. Did you go to the Institute for Baseball Studies at Whittier College? I did. That was the last thing I did before uh, I had to not go to work anymore. (laughs) Whittier Poets. Who are they? That's their uh, sports teams. They're called the Poets. What? Isn't that amazing? (laughs) I bet Um, they get picked on by the other teams, don't they? Our victory was poetic. Their whole, I mean, thing at Whittier College is amazing with baseball history. They're kind of the host for the baseball reliquary too, which is this They have like Babe Ruth's finger bone? Kind of. uh, The equivalent of that stuff. It's a um, Hall of Fame type place, but it's like an alternate Hall of Fame. So they celebrate like the weirdness of baseball and the esoteric nature of its history instead of celebrating like who's the best. Uh, the guy who ran it forever and who started it and who was sort of the soul behind it, Terry Cannon, passed away recently, unfortunately. But it's a treasure. It's one of those like great weirdo LA treasures. Did yeah. you meet them at the um, USC thing? The what was bazaar? The bazaar. Archives bazaar? Is that where you met them? I had known them before, but they are always there. I have some pens from their booth. They had a gimmick one year where they would give you something for free if you see how many baseballs you could fit in your hand. Uh, (laughs) In one single hand? Yeah, it was great. I have too many photos of me doing that, by the way. How many baseballs can you fit? Five. Yeah, right. Five. Five! Maybe four. I can't remember. I gotta go to the pictures. (laughs) I put them all in my mouth like the Guinness World (laughs) Records guy. They didn't give me anything for that. Uh, were Were the people... The people who you talked to, the family, the descendants of the families and everybody, were they happy with the book? Yeah, I think for the most part they were. The families were really generous with me and I tried to in turn, you know, do them justice as much as I could. There's a sense that for me where it's like, I have sort of this mixed feeling about writing about other people's lives in a story that's been like such, such a traumatic experience where like I'm now like the one associated with it. It's like, oh, Eric's book about Dodger Stadium, but really it's their story. Like, I feel like the Arechica family in particular, um, they lived through this in a traumatic way and, you know, it's echoed through generations in their family and it's defined many of them, you know, years later still. So, you know, they have obviously 
a big family and different perspectives on it. But for everybody who I spoke to in that family and kind of connected to that family, I'm deeply grateful. And hopefully the book, you know, highlights their voices more than anything else. Did you feel a lot of pressure? Because I would, I would feel a lot of pressure to make, you know, like you were saying, to do it justice and make sure it wasn't distasteful or anything like that. Not that you would be distasteful, but I would be. (laughs) Every time you write about somebody else's life, you feel that. At least I do. I, I, I feel like my most, the, the thing that animates me the most when I'm writing about somebody is just like wanting to like respect them on the page, right? Even if it's like saying something bad about them, but you have to say it, <laughs> say the bad thing, like talk about the flaws in a in a way that's accurate and true to how they really are or were, because otherwise, I don't know, it's it's just wrong. Like the idea of yeah. me giving somebody the chance to write about my life, and like opening up to them about my family or me personally. It's a lot of trust to put in somebody else. And so when somebody puts that trust in me, I, I try to take it seriously. Do you think your biography is coming out soon? The Eric Nussbaum biography? <laughs> I've already, I'm halfway through. I'm on the part where I need daily updates. <laughs> yeah. This is the midpoint, is this interview. <laughs> this is the midpoint of your life. Surprise. That's kind of heavy. <laughs> I'm not pulling any punches on this one. I'm a big fan of the Ken Burns baseball series that came out. I forget when. It's fantastic, but they don't talk about the West Coast too often. I, I guess because I'm local, I live like really cl- I grew up. Like right around, I'm in Legion Park, so I'm right around the corner from from Dodger Stadium and Chavez Ravine. So a lot of locals know it. So I took a, a real issue with Ken Burns thing, not bringing it up. I guess what I'm trying to ask is like, is this a local? Is this a LA story or a baseball story or a baseball history? Where do you like kind of categorize it, or is it sort of like everything? I guess it's a little bit of everything, kind of a mishmash. I think of it yeah. as being just like a story, like a good book. Hopefully, I was no, right. that was my main goal. It's like I want this to be. You mentioned a narrative, like I wanted it to feel like an emotional narrative, and that you feel something at the end of it. Primarily, that was what I was thinking about. But from the baseball history side, I feel the same way as you, Greg. Like, it's always told from the East Coast perspective. I love the Ken Burns documentary, too. Um, There's a lot of great baseball books I love that practically don't mention California. There's books about the Brooklyn Dodgers moving to LA. There's so many books about the Brooklyn Dodgers. (laughs) There's books about the LA Dodgers and Dodger Stadium that are sort of written from this like very New York perspective. And I just wanted to write something that felt like it was from the West Coast and from California and from LA. Obviously, I'm not from Echo Park or Elysian Park. I'm from Culver City, as we established. But (laughs) Well, you were born in Hollywood. Uh, (laughs) I did think that we could... It's in the biography. (laughs) Uh, I, I did think that that was like necessary, though, to tell the story from from our perspective a little bit more. And I appreciate that. Why do you think that? Because, I mean, it's the same way, you know, you see my hockey shirt. (laughs) It's the same way with hockey also is that everything is talked about on the, like, you know, Ovechkin is the the great, obviously he is kind of the best player, but there's, you know, nobody talks about uh, Andre Kopitar or uh, Kings players or just West Coast players who are oftentimes as good or better than the people on the East Coast that they're talking about. So why is there always an East Coast sports bias? I think one real reason is the time difference. Oh, it's yeah. just like too late on the East Coast for people to stay up and watch like yeah. 10 p.m. Adrian Kempe or whatever on the Kings. <laughs> like they're they're too tired. And I think I think that's a part of it. Like what you see is is what you talk about. Also the East Coast is like, you know, 
is the worst and the West Coast is better and all that stuff. Official. It is now official. <laughs> well, there goes your official your, stance. No more interviews at the Brooklyn Museum <laughs> for you. Before we go deeper into the Dodger stuff, because you mentioned your previous journalism experience, which I was always so excited to hear who you were writing for. So tell us a little bit about what you did before this book. So I wrote an article about Andre Kopitar for Sports <laughs> Illustrated once. Uh, That's the one what, Kings player I know. The one thing that Dan really wants to talk about. He was very nice. Yeah, so I wrote you know magazine articles for Sports Illustrated and ESPN. I worked for Vice for a number of years, mostly as an editor, but also writing freelance for a lot of publications. I've worked at a local TV news station in Seattle. I've worked at a Jewish newspaper. I've you know I've had a lot of media jobs and a lot of non-media jobs. It's been a a journey to get to the point where I could write the book. And you were writing in Mexico for a year, at least, weren't you? Yeah, a couple of years, Mexico City. What were you doing there? What were you doing there? <laughs> Living the expat life in Mexico City. Um, <laughs> mostly I was writing. I, I did a lot of writing there. And a lot of the book, Stealing Home, I think, came out of that experience. Like, I had been thinking about this book even when I lived there. And the chance to write about Mexico, you know, live in Mexico, there's a lot of that time and my kind of understanding of history and conquest and the relationship between the two countries grew a lot when I was living there. So it, I think it actually informed the book in a really good way, too. Well, that's what I want. That was my next question. Why did you pick th this of all things to write a book about? Is it it just spoke to you because of your everything you were into? It totally did. It's like the apotheosis. Is that even the right word? Is that a good word or a bad word? I just It sounded like the word I wanted to say. Uh, I've never heard it before, so I'll just say that it's used correctly and heroically. <laughs> I'm going to stop the Zoom to look it up. The book is definitely at the intersection of all the stuff that I'm really interested in, right? <laughs> like, I've written about baseball and culture. I really love history. I love LA. Like we the love it. It fits in that regard. When I was in high school in Culver City, California, at Culver <laughs> City High School, I got a chance to hear Frank Wilkinson, who is a central character in the book, talk about his experience being blacklisted. And Frank came into the classroom and was like, Dodger Stadium should not exist in this very gravelly voice. And I was like, it was mind blowing to me. You opened as, the book with that, and it, it startled me because I didn't know that. I didn't know that you had. That's a great way to start the book, by the way. From that moment, when I was sixteen or whatever, like I had this on my mind. And as I grew into being a writer, and I kind of always like wanted to be a writer, but it's it was a hard thing for me to admit to myself, maybe. <laughs> and when I finally got to that point where I was like, okay, I'm I'm a writer now, and I'm doing this. I knew this was the book I wanted to write, and I just kept on practicing until I was good enough to write it, I think. It was something I had tried to kind of like start on a few times earlier, and I had never really found the momentum or found the interest or found the right way in, but I'm glad I did it when I did. Okay, so you, you liked the Dodgers growing up, correct? <laughs> Yes. Or, or is there some uh, into the microphone, a little closer into the microphone? Did all this research, learning all this stuff, change the way that you look at the Dodgers? Yes and no. Like obviously, it did. I spent years working on a book about the Dodgers. I learned a lot about the Dodgers, good and bad, and about the history behind the stadium and about the history of LA. But I wouldn't say it like made me stop like loving the Dodgers in the way I already did because that relationship has evolved a lot over the years. Like my love for the Dodgers is part of like who I am. It's part of my relationships with my friends and my family. But I've also been writing about baseball professionally for like 15, not 15 years, 10 years ish. So your fandom evolves from that, right? Like you have to start holding things at more of a distance, you have to learn how to be critical of things. And I had already, I think, reached that point 
before I started the book. That all said, when you sit with somebody and they tell you about their house that was demolished to make way for what ultimately became a stadium, and you can go sit in the top deck and look out and see where the elementary school is buried underneath the stadium parking lot, yeah, it definitely changes your relationship with the team. That is complicated. <laughs> I had a teacher when I was at a trade tech who refused to go to Dodger Stadium or even support the Dodgers because of what had happened. Uh, and I feel like that's a a thing with a lot of local residents is that they want to completely shun it altogether. It is. It's very complicated to like them knowing it. It's totally complicated. And it's a, it's a complicated thing because it's not just the Dodgers, right? Like the Dodgers are a part of the story. And I, I would say that they, they should be talked about as part of the story, mm-hmm. but like, they're not the whole story. The whole story is LA itself and yeah. institutional corruption and racism and the kind of misguided notions of supposedly progressive idealists and the rampant evil of real estate developers in early 50s LA like there's all these things that that led into it yeah so on one hand yeah like if you want to protest the Dodgers absolutely like there's a group of descendants of the Erechiga family and the other families called Buried Under the Blue right and they are doing really great activism about tenants rights in particular in LA from this tradition of, you know, our family lost our home and we lost our community. And they talk about this history in a really, really lively way. They do amazing work. And they also sell shirts that say displacers on them with the Dodgers logo. <laughs> I've like, seen those are great. They're awesome shirts. I have a displacer yeah. sticker on my computer. <laughs> but that's a perspective that's totally valid. And But they would also tell you that like, yeah, the Dodgers were a part of it, but it's not just about the Dodgers. It's about understanding all the forces that are coming to bear on us. Those are the forces of, you know, late capitalism or whatever. They're the forces yeah. of how power gets wielded in cities and racism and corruption and just all the LA stuff and yeah. universal stuff. So the Dodgers are part of the story, but the Dodgers are not the whole story. That's what I was thinking. I don't know if your book solidified it in my brain, but it's sort of like it, almost every big LA story is a land story to me like land being taken or like land being coveted space is like a weird issue in LA and they always talk about how vast the Southern California is but we're always fighting for land and space (laughs) near the you know city center it's true and like I kind of had this moments when I was writing about it like the 50s city council stuff and the fights over housing and I was like god this is just like every like detective novel I've ever read about (laughs) LA like I'm I'm writing another Chinatown story (laughs) which is fun because it's like a great genre and I love that stuff but like you're also kind of like I'm not even trying to fall into these tropes, and they're totally just right here. <laughs> That's Chinatown. <laughs> Dodger Town. Forget it, Eric. That's Dodger Nation. <laughs> One quick question before you jump in. It's a dumb question. I know you've been asked it before, and you, you've been very explicit about us not asking stupid questions. <laughs> did you grow up in Culver I City? <laughs> I did not say anything about that. Where exactly is Culver City? No. Um. <laughs> it's where the 405 and the 10 meet. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and what, is, what does that even mean? Um, those coordinates? My ed- another teacher gush about your title, which is perfect. How'd you come up with the title? My editor, Ben Adams, came up with the title. So he gets all the credit. <laughs> and at first, yeah. at first, it was definitely going to be... I don't know. We didn't really know. We had a really hard time with it. And he kind of said it as a joke, like, baseball pun, stealing home. And I was like, no way. <laughs> we can't call it stealing home. It's funny because my mom had suggested dugout as a title, like dugout oh, for baseball. And I, and I had this exchange with her. I was like, mom, I'm not going to give my book a cheesy baseball pun for a title. And of course, like, lo and behold, I did. Thank you, mom. Uh, yeah, it worked out great. It's a really good yeah. title. And I actually kind of 
the reason I came to embrace it is as I started to think about all those like, you know, Philip Marlowe books and stuff like that and the somewhat noirish nature of the story. I was like, you know, let's just go for stealing home. It works. <laughs> Lean into it. The big yeah. stealing home. <laughs> My next question, because you talk you talked about how on the like official in the official history of the Dodgers, they don't talk about any of this. So there's all this stuff like with the red Redskins. Is that even a baseball team? What's the baseball equivalent? What's the baseball the equivalent? Yeah. The Indians. And all of these teams in all sports that are facing like you know change your name and all that sort of thing is there going to be something like this ever for the Dodgers with this situation there should be they I mean the Dodgers you know tout themselves as the you know progressive organization despite just signing Trevor Bauer they have a tendency to like talk about how global they are and you know they really like they go hard at promoting their you know mexican-american fan base right like viva los doyers and all that stuff <laughs> but like on the one hand that's all well and good and they've had iconic players from japan mexico dominican republic korea mm-hmm. all these places but on the other they had you know like mexican heritage night on the 50th anniversary <laughs> of the violent evictions of the Arechica family like a couple years ago so there's gonna have to be some kind of reckoning at some point and i think it will happen soon. Like last summer when all the teams were all putting out their Black Lives Matter statements and, you know, videos with the players talking about how much they valued black lives. Like that was the sign that like a sign to me that teams are being moved now by social movements and social events a little bit more maybe than before. And I think it's only a matter of time before the Dodgers start to be forced to reckon with this a little bit more. And I should also add the city of LA needs to reckon with it and the county of LA needs to reckon with it. Like there needs to be official statements. There needs to be official movements towards some sort of reparation from city and county governments too. And I'm not really the one to talk about this. I'll also <laughs> add that. Like, that's my opinion. But, you know, talk to Barrett under the blue or talk to people from those communities about what they think would be right. What could they even put at, I mean, you said repar- like reparations and that sort of thing, but could there's something they could put at Dodger Stadium to like a plaque at least or something or like a statue or anything? I think a plaque would probably not cut it. <laughs> no, you're not seeing the plaque that we're seeing though. This is a really big picture. <laughs> the thing has to be like a dialogue that starts yeah. like genuinely from a place of wanting to talk about this stuff and engage with it. And that's really like what needs to be the first step. I think anything could happen. Like in 20 years ago when they were under the Fox ownership, the Dodgers had a olive branch ceremony where they brought in some of the community members and they to the little um parish over in Solano Canyon and they held this little ceremony where they handed an olive branch to like the community members it was super corny and insufficient yeah. and that's not the kind of thing you want to try to repeat uh, Fair. like I said this is a really big plaque that we have in mind though how do you feel about like Vin Scully being like look we're all looking out at Ch-. this is my worst Vin Scully impression <laughs> uh, look at we're all looking at Chavez Ravine part of me is like oh so you do you are acknowledging and aware that this was Chavez Ravine but that that's like as far as it goes yeah I mean the the words Chavez Ravine even don't really connect to anything specific I now right, other than yeah. Dodger Stadium. Like, it's just yeah. the vibe. Chavez Ravine is sort of like a... I think I say in the book that it's like a state of mind, almost right. more than a place. And to me, that's that's what it is. Like, you know, the the three neighborhoods, right? They had their specific names and their specific identities of Palo Verde, La Loma, and Bishop. And the people who live there are proud of those neighborhoods and those identities. Like, somebody... You, know, you meet, like, a 90-year-old guy with a PV Palo Verde tattoo still. Like, <laughs> these are real places. And it's important to differentiate between, like, the cotton candy skies of Chavez Ravine now with the physical manifestation of those neighborhoods 
as it existed. They existed, you know, 60, 70 years ago. I think you had a, even a chapter where you're saying like residents looked at this like a, or people who stumbled into it looked at it like it was a Shangri-La and residents really saw it as a utopia and Walter O'Malley and Frank Wilkins all saw this area as something really special. Yeah, it was a special place. Like it was a utopia and I think in like retrospect more than it was in reality. I think in reality what it was was just a really like tight-knit neighborhood and it was a great place to grow up for kids right you're in like in Elysian Park basically you have the hills at your disposal it was awesome it was also a place that was starved for resources because the city didn't want to like give them better streetlights and bus service and they had to fight for each one of those things that you know a neighborhood in Cheviot Hills or whatever would have gotten just fine you know there was poverty and there was problems and there was fights and normal stuff in any neighborhood and there was also you know beautiful homes that a lot of them are still standing in la today because they got moved by trucks to different parts of the city <laughs> they're all in uh was that area the area by Carol's, you you know Carol's Carol's Street. Street. yeah <laughs> they, they filmed the monster there some of that no uh, the to kill a mockingbird was filmed with houses from really yeah i had no idea you probably said it and i forgot yeah i i I do remember (laughs) i do remember you teaching me that that's crazy (laughs) but is there ever gonna how could there be enough pressure on the city to make a change because like the black lives matter stuff was national if not global and so everyone had to address it but this is a specific la thing like what can people do to i don't know put that pressure i'm not really sure i'm not the person maybe to best answer that question. You're all my, I think the most <laughs> you can do is just talk about it and think about it. And when you get, you know, politicians and people in power thinking about these issues, then you maybe have a chance to start to make a change. But for the most part, you know, we're still dealing with these issues when it comes to housing, when it comes to gentrification, when it comes to sports stadiums, when it comes to free, all this stuff is still happening in LA. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of desire to change the paradigm yeah that's weird because you mentioned dodger the dodgers saying oh we're a liberal organization and then not addressing not even a plaque for this but (laughs) the whole city of los angeles is i i I don't think it's true but everyone has this uh, image that oh la so liberal it's such a progressive place but like no clearly not (laughs) there's different ways of being progressive also first of all one of the things that and you guys talk about this a lot on the podcast but that blew my mind as I was researching the book, was just how conservative LA used to be. Like, it was possibly the most conservative big city in America for 50, 60 years. And the power brokers in LA were these just like crazy (laughs) right-wing dudes who like only worked to line their own pockets at the expense of everything else. And they were very transparent about it, which is really a gift to researchers. (laughs) But there's still a lot of legacy of that in LA. And it's also worth thinking about like that the conservative liberal divide is not as simple as it seems, right? Like in the book, I talk about the Adechiga family, and they were conservative homeowners who became the target of a progressive idea in public housing. And Hmm. when they were fighting to preserve their home and to stop the public housing project initially, their allies were conservative homeowners, not, you know, supposed progressives. And that was complicated. It's not as simple as like, here's the brown people and here's the white people. These ideas are like deeply ingrained into our city of the value of generational wealth and the value of owning a home and what that means and doesn't mean. And we have a tendency to kind of write it off, you know, and people who are like supposedly progressive will talk about growth and, you know, needing to build more apartments and more transit. And I I obviously think that's, that's right on. But like, you also have to think about the communities that are there in place. You have to think about what you're costing people. You have to think about who these decisions are affecting. And that's, it's not as simple as liberal conservative. Right. 
It sounds simple. Sorry, I'm getting kind of heavy. I know this is a humor podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. You know, we we uh, Greg make a joke. Uh, <laughs> so there was this bird's nest, right? No, I got nothing. Um, <laughs> if none of this had never had ever happened, and the Dodgers never came to LA, would everyone just be an Angels fan, or like what would be what would be happening? Would it be the Chorizeros? Everyone would be a Chorizeros fan. <laughs> Biggest team in LA. Hey, they were. I wish it was yeah. it was the Chorizeros. I think like it would probably be the Angels. Another team would have moved here. I think it would be probably like some other baseball team would have just moved here in the 50s instead. So That's was this was it just inevitable? Like if it wasn't the Dodgers, it would have been the uh, Greg name another baseball team. Seattle Mariners. <laughs> I mean, they didn't exist until like the 70s. But Greg name another baseball team. It could have been them. Hollywood Angels. <laughs> no, I mean, it might have been them. Like it could have been one of the AAA teams from the Pacific Coast League went to the majors. There's a lot of ways it could have happened. And it didn't have to be, you know, where Dodger Stadium is right now. There was a lot of sites in the 50s and 60s that were pretty right for building a stadium. In Orange Grove, in Orange County, I could think of would have been a good place for a baseball stadium. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, ironically, like Walt Disney looked at the hills that became Dodger Stadium and decided it was too, you know, not flat to build Disneyland there. (laughs) I think the Orange Groves worked out pretty well for him. I think he knows what he's doing. What other topics in LA are you interested in writing a book about? Podcasts. (laughs) Well, pick... two you can pick one to do a book on (laughs) it's only two i I don't really have another la book on my mind right now uh what what topics in la would you want to see a book written about Mm, that's a good question you'd have to read a book though i realize this is a lot to ask yeah yeah it's not just an old article yeah (laughs) how about just like a video on (laughs) kcet Let me call Nathan Masters and make that happen. Oh, trust me. He returns all of my messages. <laughs> I always want to know more about the sci-fi society meeting at Clifton's. I don't know why I'm so fascinated by that. All these dorks in the 50s who became like masters of their genre, getting free limeade and taking the bus or whatever. <laughs> Clifton's. Clifton's is so fascinating as a place. It is. I talk about it a little bit in Stealing Home, but like mm-hmm. I wish I would could read like a whole book. I mean, there is a book, but it's like a Clifton family official history and it's, it's yeah. interesting and good but like like a outsider history of Clifton's and cafeterias in LA actually would be awesome. <laughs> I remember when we when we did a long time ago our episode of where Wyatt Earp came to Los Angeles. You were like, "Huh, I should write a book about Wyatt Earp coming to Los Angeles." And that would because that doesn't make any sense at all that yeah. famed gunslinger Wyatt Earp uh, <laughs> came to LA. There's just all these weird people who you'd never expect that just kind of lived out the end of their lives in Lo- like the um Rosecrans that we were talking about in the, oh, right. the last episode. This civil war union general just kind of retired to redondo beach i mean it's a nice place to retire to i guess <laughs> have you seen the boardwalk that grimy hard to find a parking spot though <laughs> the whole city was a parking spot back then <laughs> are you interested in doing another book on anything at all or it's i am i am but i i'd like to know their history book but i'm not there yet in terms of mm-hmm. like writing it or even talking about it to be honest <laughs> not even with us not even with you well, that's all my uh innovative questions i had written down do you have any more greg <laughs> just stupid ones uh what do you think about what do you think about the cardboard cutouts last year at, at the stadiums <laughs> during a uh, covid baseball season they're fine okay that's fine <laughs> I thought, that's uh, fair. They're fine i didn't really have a strong feeling about it it's better than empty seats i guess yeah uh, my kids now when they see baseball on like to like identify whether it's fake people or real people in the crowd <laughs> that's the thing i've noticed like they were with their grandparents watching a spring training game the other day and uh our younger son Marco, who's three and a half, said, "Oh, those are fake people." 
I look at the TV and they were. He's going to be a big fan of Invasion of the Body Snatchers <laughs> when he gets to it. It's, he a, great, designed, it's a great movie. He's probably almost yeah. ready for it. He designed yeah. these sunglasses that when he wears them, <laughs> he can detect cardboard cutouts. It was very weird imagery for seeing it. But at the end of baseball season, I was like, yeah, it's, it's, it's actually a lot of fun to see these wacky things. You can kind of adjust to anything, it turns out. Yeah. yeah. The ones yeah, they it, had um, for the Dodgers I saw looked pretty good, but they did some for the Kings. And it was like they didn't get the the proportions right so like the shoulders were like this and then there'd be like a golden retriever <laughs> wearing a king's jersey but like nobody's neck really fit onto the the body of the cardboard cutout were they doing fake noise in the games they were yeah yeah i think they even had the organist like in there pounding away during the fake games <sighs> it's so like, why do we it's not necessary the thing is always delayed so like they're like in hockey there will be a save and then two seconds later oh is any of it necessary i mean if we're talking about what's necessary with sports during a pandemic especially it, it's a got me there it's essential <laughs> all those players who have gotten covid it was essential <laughs> what do you like to eat at dodger stadium if we're doing stupid yeah. questions that's like a good question honestly i'm not like a huge fan of dodger dogs they're fine huh. uh i like the grilled ones when you, you, you gotta snag you gotta snag a grilled dodger dog if you're gonna eat one because the steam ones i think are kind of gross i used to like eating carl's jr at dodger games when they had it i don't know why but that was just like an association they always had carl's jr dodger games and i would get like a double western cheeseburger and that was somehow or like Yoshinoya all like the weird LA factory <laughs> restaurants that you could get at Dodger games they had King Taco for a little bit which I thought was like a pretty cool uh, crossover event but that yeah. didn't last long a crossover event <laughs> the things they have at Staples Center are so disappointing that they don't have more they have like one local LA thing they have Ludo Bird which is oh, that's, uh, that's a chicken that's okay. okay yeah it was really rich though but like everything else is just like a Farmer John hot dog which I guess is LA but <laughs> The real answer to these questions is like at Dodger Stadium, you can bring your own food in. Go to like a good restaurant, get a sandwich, and bring it to the game. Uh, Maybe that's a what I usually do. I didn't know get you it. could do that at Dodger you Stadium. You can get a you can bring Philippe's into Dodger Stadium. When I'm going from Culver City, I would bring a sandwich from Jackson Market to Dodger Stadium. Or when you're going to Kings game, you can stop at the pantry for a meal beforehand, put some French fries in your pocket, <laughs> and carry them into the stadium. It works really well. Trust me, and it's delicious too. You know, one time my dad tried sneaking Cracker Jack into Staples Center and they're so strict, but he had it like in like taxi driver, like he had it in his jacket sleeves and Cracker Jacks have that sort of aluminum <laughs> aluminum inside of it so they uh, had to wand him <laughs> and he had to take two boxes of cracker jacks out of his sleep to throw them away That's, i hope somebody ate them at least <laughs> yeah they fed them to adrian kempe after <laughs> anything else you have greg no no just praise i think that the book is wonderful and yeah. i think uh you're a lot of fun to talk to so thank you yeah thank you for having me i'm glad we could finally do this because i was i kept thinking like well the pandemic will be over and we could just go to dodger <laughs> stadium but now it's looking like there's going to be people doing something covid related at dodger stadium for like two years yeah. now probably probably but you know it's finally being used for a public purpose again so yeah there's something to that, be said about uh, that yeah it became like the hub of public health in los angeles so i mean someone's happy good somewhere. it's a, the parking lots yeah. of dodger stadium are so big like if you ever drive around when it's empty it's crazy mm -hmm. and that space should be used for something like in the beginning of the pandemic they had rental cars parked there did you ever see those clips no they like oh, the yeah, airports were did. all shut down and like yeah. they needed a place to keep all the cars because nobody was renting anything so the dodgers just rented out their lots to like avis <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> the city is fine. Nature is returning. <laughs> <I know. laughs>